Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. On this episode, a discussion about a new Brookings resource called TechStream, a new publication site on brookings.edu that puts technologists and policymakers in conversation. To explain what TechStream is and some of the issues it covers, I'm joined on today's episode by Chris Meserol, a fellow in foreign policy and deputy director of the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative. Also on the episode, Daryl West, the Vice President and Director of Governance Studies at Brookings, answers a listener's question about how the coronavirus might affect the U.S. presidential election. This is part of our Policy 2020 Ask an Expert series. If you have a question for a Brookings expert, send an audio file to bcp at brookings.edu. Follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. And now on with the interview. Chris, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. Let's start at the very top. Tell us what is TechStream? So Brookings TechStream is a new platform that we've launched. The purpose of it is to really try and hold tomorrow's tech policy conversations today. And what we mean by that is we've kind of been through this cycle repeatedly over the last decade or two where a new technology will come out and we really won't grapple with its policy consequences or policy and societal implications until, in many cases, it's really too late either to manage the downside risks or even in other cases, to really seize and cultivate some of the benefits it brings. And so the idea behind Brookings TechStream is that we want to kind of move upstream to the tech sector itself and begin engaging or putting policymakers, civil society, academic researchers in conversation with technologists as early as possible in the life cycle of new technologies. So we've just launched it and we're really excited to see where it goes. So, Chris, you've talked about what sounds like a gap that TechStream is filling. So is there no one doing this kind of connection between policymakers and technologists? And also, why aren't policymakers doing this already? Yeah, so I think that there's a couple of different gaps, actually. One is just this fundamental gap in terms of expertise, where technologists oftentimes don't have a great understanding or an in-depth understanding of the policymaking process in general. They may have a decent kind of overview of what's happening in terms of our politics and political systems, but in terms of understanding how policy is made, what the incentives and structures of our political institutions really look like on the ground, they tend to not have as deep an understanding or awareness of that. And as a result, they don't really always understand what's politically feasible. Conversely, I think policymakers really struggle oftentimes to understand the kind of underlying technology that's at the heart of so many of the tech policy issues that we're dealing with now. And so, you know, I think probably a a great example of that would be the Zuckerberg hearings in Congress, where it was just very apparent that many of the Congress people that were interviewing Mark Zuckerberg didn't really have a firm grasp of how Facebook worked, much less how some parts of the internet worked, some basic things like email. I think we've seen this kind of time and again. And so one of the big challenges that we have is this knowledge gap or expertise gap between the tech sector and the policymaking sector. And the other gap is the temporal gap that I alluded to earlier, where there's this gap where a new technology will come out, a new product or protocol will come out, and it'll take a few years to get adopted at scale anyway, and then it'll take a few more years for the policy implications to become apparent, and then it'll take a few more years for 
governance structures to be put in place around them. And by the time all is said and done, it's usually it can be up to a decade before we've really grappled with these technologies, at which point in time, very often we're dealing with a new generation of technology and we have to kind of start the cycle all over again. And so there's two gaps that we need to address. And unfortunately, there's really not a lot of good fora in which to kind of close or narrow those gaps. There's certainly been an effort lately to put policymakers in deeper conversation with the tech sector. There's some universities and labs that have been a little bit more aggressive about bringing out policymakers to their labs, but there's a limit to what you can do in person. And I don't know that that's going to be the way that we solve this problem on its own. I think we need to kind of have both educational programs for Congress people going to the tech sector and vice versa, ideally. But we also need to have just much broader and richer conversation within our political discourse and in our media ecosystem. And that's where there really hasn't been a great resource for these kind of conversations to happen for tech policy writ large. Some of my colleagues at law, for example, have done a great job in navigating a lot of the tech policy conversations, but it's primarily constrained to just the national security domain. And there's not a great place to go right now for just tech policy conversations writ large. There's obviously some, but I think there's a lot more that could be done and a lot more conversations that need to take place. And the goal of Brookings TechStream is really to provide a home and a place for those debates to occur. So I think Lawfare is a great analogy for what people can expect on TechStream. So can you go into that a little bit more in terms of its format? What will people find on TechStream and also who can contribute to TechStream? Yeah, so one of the guiding hopes for TechStream is that it will be very much an open platform that will not just be limited, even though it's on the Brookings website and it's a site on the Brookings domain, that it'll be a home for experts even outside the Brookings network, whether it's Brookings resident fellows or non-resident fellows. We want people who are in labs all across the country and even across the world to be able to contribute to this. Same for civil society experts and researchers who are dealing with some of the policy and societal implications of technology. The goal is really to kind of open and create a new platform in which those conversations can take place and leverage some of the convening power that Brookings has in aid of those conversations. And I think that's something that Lawfare, to bring it back to your question, has done really well within the national security domain, where for any one of the given niche topics that they cover, they're able to get some of the best experts in the world to come to their site and contribute their thinking and really advance the conversation in meaningful ways. And that's one of the big long-term goals for Brookings TechStream is that it would do something similar for a lot of the tech policy conversations that we're having, and not just in the national security domain, but across a wide variety of domains. And we're looking forward to building that out in the years to come. Let's talk about some of those issues, some of those domains. When we think about technology and we think about policy, I mean, sometimes we think about threats, but we're also thinking about opportunities or just technology issues that don't necessarily have to imply threats. What kinds of issues in technology is TechStream going to be grappling with? So I think to start, we'll probably be focusing a lot on things like disinformation, election integrity, certainly public health, given the current environment. But ultimately, I think the goal is really to kind of have conversations about the downstream policy implications of new technologies, whatever they may be. And so in some cases, those will be very relevant to, say, like our political discourse. I was a developer using some of the early Twitter APIs at the end of the 2000s. And it was very kind of obvious that the way that Twitter had architected its API 
And an API is short for application programming interface, and it's a way for developers to connect into a site as a third party. And what was very clear as I was doing that work was that the way that they had constructed their platform and the protocols that they had developed for it were going to have pretty major consequences for how political debate and discussion happened, especially as the audience and user base of a platform like Twitter grew, that the importance of those protocols and their implications were only going to grow over time as the audience grew. And that became a lot of the concerns I had then was related to the way that the platform design was structured and the way that that was leading to certain behaviors that I was seeing even in the late 2000s in terms of rewarding or incentivizing people to have really extreme positions on things. It was incentivizing the political conversation to be pushed out to the margins. But that was really something that was coming up just with the protocol. And it it was something that you kind of had to think through a few steps ahead at the time. There's other protocols and other technologies that will come out where the downstream implications, depending on the domain of the application, will be different. So another example might be in the manufacturing space, if we have a new generation of robotics that use reinforcement learning, there are certain tasks that they can now perform that they couldn't before, and that will have downstream impacts on very specific industries and labor markets that we will need to address. And so in our case, the goal of Brookings TechStream is not necessarily to look at things in terms of just threats to politics or to elections, but to really start to think through across a broad range of applications what their downstream impacts might be. Let's focus on a current threat that's on everyone's mind, and that is, as you mentioned, public health which is the coronavirus pandemic and COVID-19. Can you talk about the intersection of tech and policymaking in that context? Yeah, so I think that that's such a fascinating intersection to try and think through and grapple with. And I think at a macro scale, I think one of the things that's pretty apparent now is that for us to relax the kind of stay-at-home orders and the lockdown, one of the discussions that we're having is really ultimately, in effect, it's a renegotiation to some extent of our social contract or our governance contract, where we are debating in real time how much of our privacy we were willing to give up or how much information about us and our movements the state is entitled to in order for us to enjoy the freedom of movement that we might have been accustomed to in the past. And I think that conversation And renegotiation is happening entirely along a fault line that's being imposed by technology, which is that we've got these new technologies now that enable real-time mass tracking of movement that in the past just wouldn't have been possible. But today, thanks to the ubiquity of smartphones and in particular the GPS chips within them, we're able to geolocate individuals as they go about their day in a way that just was not possible or feasible in the past. And so it opens up a new avenue for surveillance that did not previously exist. And I think to bring it back to Brookings TechStream, one of the early posts that we had on there was by some excellent scholars, Ryan Kalo and Ashkan Sultani and Carl Bergstrom, who were thinking through the downstream impacts of a new contact tracing protocol or exposure notification protocol that Apple and Google have been developing using Bluetooth technology on smartphones, where The goal of that technology was to make it possible for phones to communicate or keep a register of other individuals that a person has been near. And then as people were diagnosed with COVID-19, that it would be possible to go back in time and notify people who had been exposed to that person while the disease was contagious. 
the challenges of implementing that kind of protocol are pretty significant if you're also trying to do it in a privacy-preserving way. And Apple and Google have, to their credit, I think, have tried to anonymize it to the extent that they can. But the piece that we ran on Brookings TechStream was basically arguing that even the measures that Apple and Google had taken in trying to preserve the privacy of their users was still probably not going to be enough. I would probably argue with the piece itself that we ran. I think that Apple and Google have actually done a pretty good job in terms of building out the protocol that they've developed. But the broader point is that we need to be having debates about those kinds of protocols before they're deployed, because once it's released and app developers can start building applications based on that protocol, the install base for iOS and for Android is in the hundreds of millions and even billions of users. And so the finer points of the protocol that they're developing are going to have massive and material impacts on people's lives all around the world. And that's the kind of conversation that we're hoping to have on Brookings TechStream. And I think in some cases, it's probably the best example of both what the platform can do and also of how it's most relevant to the COVID crisis itself. I just want to uh, share with listeners some of the recent content that's on TechStream. I'm just going to scroll down the homepage, which people can find at brookings.edu slash TechStream. I mean, just today, there's a piece about COVID-19 and apps. There's a piece about the Earn It Act, which is in the Senate Judiciary Committee that could weaken cybersecurity encryption for our online financial lives. Trade secrets. There's a piece on encrypted messaging apps and propaganda. There's a piece on can artificial intelligence help us design vaccines, surveillance technology in South Korea, and the pandemic It goes on and on. There's all different kinds of content. There's a lot of content about COVID-19, obviously, but there's a lot more. So anyway, it seems like it's a very broad look at technology issues that you have. Let's move on to kind of a regional focus. I mentioned South Korea. I know there's content that's related to China. So it seems like there's not particularly an area of focus unless you count the globe as your area. Can you talk a little bit about just how broad a geographic scope TechStream has? Yeah, so I think for us, one of the really interesting things about technology is just how global it's become. So I think for the most part, we still associate a lot of technical innovation as happening primarily in Silicon Valley, for example. And to be sure, that's where just an enormous amount of innovation is still happening. But the whole tool system that we've built around next generation technologies, whether that's cloud computing whether that's open source software or things like GitHub that allow developers to coordinate around the world. It's made it possible for developers all around the world to really create and distribute products and apps that have pretty significant policy and societal implications all around the world. We don't view Brookings TechStream as really being constrained to any one region. I think we want to talk about the technologies that are going to be having an impact on our lives and on global society, wherever those technologies are being developed. In this case, for a lot of the technologies that we care about now, some of the regions where we'll probably end up focusing on would be places like Russia or China, in a sense that they're using some of these technologies a bit differently than the U.S. is. I'm thinking in particular of disinformation campaigns and the way that those campaigns are being developed and deployed by either the Russian and Chinese state or proxies acting on their behalf. So we will be having like a global focus, although it wouldn't surprise me if there were some regions that were covered a little bit more extensively than others. And the same is probably true even in a COVID crisis, where I think we have a lot to learn from 
countries like South Korea or Taiwan in terms of the technologies that they've been using to manage the renegotiation of the social contract that I was mentioning earlier. Taiwan and South Korea have both done just a fantastic job of containing their virus outbreak to date. And one of the ways that they've been able to do that is by better integrating technology with their public health policy. And so I think we have a lot to learn from those countries. And I suspect that we'll continue to look at what they're doing and explore what parts of the systems that they've built can be brought over to the U.S. or other democratic countries. Chris, I want to go a little bit deeper into how you personally became involved in this tech stream concept, the intersection of technology and policy. You mentioned earlier that in the 2000s, you were a actual developer developing APIs. Was there any particular moment or event that occurred that made you think, as a technologist at the time, there needs to be more integration into my work in technology of public policy? And now here you are at a public policy organization mm-hmm. doing technology policy. Yeah, so this is a long time in the making. I think. One of the things I was doing, you know, a decade plus ago was, as I mentioned, building some apps on the early APIs of Twitter and other platforms. But at the same time, my academic research was focused on conflict and extremism. So I remember, I think it was 2009 or so, and from 2009 early into the Arab Spring, there was this narrative of Twitter is great. It's a pro-social tool that will really help democratic movements around the world. And it allows democratic activists and human rights activists to coordinate with each other and get their word out. And all of which I think was very much true at the time. But I remember also thinking the same reasons that those groups are leveraging Twitter are also why eventually you'll start to see actors like Al-Qaeda or others really kind of harness them as well. And then sure enough, it was a couple of years later that the Islamic State perfected the use of Twitter for recruitment purposes. They also were obviously on Facebook and other platforms too. And then we saw the same kind of cycle play out where Facebook really built out incredibly powerful recommendation algorithm and ad targeting platform. And as they were building that out, it was also, I think, apparent to those of us who are dealing not just with technology, but kind of trying to think through how these technologies could be exploited from the perspective of malicious state or non-state actor, what might happen. And I think there were a number of us that were worried about what Russia might do with some of those platforms. And sure enough, in the 2016 election, they clearly were able to exploit those platforms pretty masterfully and without a lot of awareness that they were doing it, at least within the tech sector. And I think Both of those experiences combined with a few other instances of good intentions or the development of technologies, either with good intentions or just kind of not thinking about how they might be used and exploited, led to really bad political outcomes. Like the experience of watching that happen a few times made it clear to me that by like 2017, 2018, that we really needed to have a new kind of policy conversation around technology where we weren't just focused on what had happened in the last two or three years, but that we were actually trying to figure out, given the state of the art and the new cutting edge technologies of this moment, what kind of problems are we going to face two or three years from now once they've kind of become adopted and exploited at scale? And that's a different kind of conversation than we've ever really had before. But if we're ever going to try and catch up to the technology itself, it's something that we just have to do. Otherwise, we're always going to be behind the curve. And along with a colleague of mine, Elena Polyakova, we wrote this article in Foreign Policy magazine, I think in 2018, kind of making the argument that we need to 
start thinking through the policy and societal implications of new technologies as early as possible. And the kind of core idea that we put forward in that article kind of became the genesis or germ that ultimately led to Brookings TechStream as we kind of thought through what we could do to facilitate the kind of conversations that we thought weren't happening but needed to happen. So it's, it's been a long journey, but we're really proud of how it turned out. Yeah, I will put a link to that Foreign Policy Magazine article in the show notes. So speaking of getting or staying ahead of the curve, Chris, how do you personally stay ahead of the curve in this work? You're at home now, but you're based in Washington, D.C. That's where your office is. How do you as a researcher at a think tank stay on top of emerging tech at labs and universities and Mm -hmm. anywhere else that you need to stay up with? Yeah, so thankfully, the good news is technologists, like any other community, kind of have their community water coolers, so to speak, that most folks at the leading edge of those fields will aggregate or come to just kind of share information with each other. And sometimes that's kind of formal websites. Technical sense, the best place to go to the places that I go often to try and just keep abreast of what's happening on the tech side would be like archive.org or the IEEE, and just making sure that we're up to date or keeping tabs of what the state of the art is across a number of different technologies. But then there's also the less technical water cooler, so to speak, where folks are just having kind of a little bit more freeform conversations. And so that might be just following the right people on Twitter, or it could be something like one of the prominent early stage venture capital firms is called Y Combinator, and they have a message board of sorts that called Hacker News that you can kind of get a pretty decent feel for what's on people's minds who are at the cutting edge of developing some of these technologies. If you just spend some time there, they're not necessarily places that a lot of people in DC will spend time idly reading and catching up on news, but thankfully there's no shortage of places to go to get this information. And it's actually been one of the encouraging things of the last decade and especially the last few years is that I think it's gotten a lot easier for people outside of the technical community or people who have technical backgrounds but aren't working as an engineer specifically to keep tabs of what's going on in those fields. Everybody, I think, is rightly concerned with a lot of the challenges associated with the internet right now, but there's also a lot of benefits. I think that's one of them. Well, you've already published a whole bunch of new pieces since TechStream launched at the end of April. Can you talk about some of the things that you're working on now, what you expect to come out of the project in the coming months? Yeah, so I think we're excited to see where the project goes. I think we've done a lot of work so far on the intersection of public health and the pandemic with different tech policy issues. Unfortunately, the longer the pandemic goes on, I think those conversations will only become more important. So I imagine we'll continue to do work in that space. I also think that coming into the pandemic, there were a whole number of really important tech policy conversations going on, whether that was around data privacy or disinformation, or the impact of these technologies on things like extremism. And I think all of those conversations are ones that we're eager to take part of and really try and advance the policy conversations around, not just in light of COVID, but on their own terms. Because I think eventually, hopefully, we'll get a pretty good handle on the pandemic. And those issues, even though they may feel like they've gone away a bit right now, because we're also focused on the pandemic, and rightly so, the underlying causes of those issues haven't gone away. And I think we're still going to have to have all those really important conversations. And hopefully we can start to do that a little more aggressively in the months to come. Can you just explain once again how people can contribute to this? What do they need to do if they want to write a piece for TechStream? Yeah, so we're really eager and open to publishing folks who are not affiliated with Brookings. And there's a few ways to do it. One is to email me directly if you just go on the Brookings website. My email is listed there. There's a contact form. We read everything and we'd be glad to engage with you. 
There's also an about page on TechStream that has further information about how to get in touch with us and further information as well about the kind of content that we're looking for. The whole point of the site is to really try and put technologists and the policy community in conversation. And so if you have valuable insights based on your own technical and or policy expertise, we'd love to hear from you. Well, that's terrific, Chris. Thanks for coming on the show today and congratulations on the launch of TechStream. Thanks so much, Fred. It's been a real pleasure as always. You can learn more about TechStream on the Brookings website, brookings.edu slash TechStream. And now here's Governance Studies Vice President Daryl West on how the coronavirus could affect the presidential election. Hi, I'm Christina King from Long Beach, California, and I'm wondering if a Brookings expert can share how the coronavirus outbreak is likely to affect the election. Thanks, Christina, for your question. I'm Daryl West, and here is my response. Several months ago, President Trump was cruising towards a possible re-election. He had a strong economy, a 3.5% national unemployment rate, and a stock market that was at a record high. All those things historically would have predicted an easy re-election for him. But now the coronavirus has hit, and that tide has turned dramatically against Trump. There are three particular problems that he faces. One is the economy. Right now, experts are anticipating we're going to have a 15 to 20% national unemployment rate. That is a huge problem for any president seeking re-election. If you think back to presidents who have lost their re-election bids, generally they had a very weak economy. This was the case in 1980 for Jimmy Carter when he was campaigning for re-election, and the same problem ended up defeating George Herbert Walker Bush in 1992. The second problem is the health problem associated with COVID. Right now, we're headed to 70,000 fatalities, and that number could end up being higher than that. Trump has been criticized for having a very slow response to dealing with that health emergency. Public opinion surveys suggest that he has demonstrated a lack of empathy for all of the human suffering that is coming out of that. And so that is a big problem for him as he's headed into the re-election because people see Joe Biden as a more sympathetic figure, someone capable of greater empathy, somebody who cares about average people. So that has created a big problem for uh, Trump. And then the third obstacle is what pollsters like to call the right track, wrong track question, in which we ask people, is the country headed in the right direction or is it seriously off in the wrong direction? Right now, the percentage of Americans saying the country is headed in the right direction is only 37%. So almost two-thirds of Americans believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. Historically, that has predicted big problems for any president seeking re-election. So based on those facts, those are ways in which COVID has possibly derailed a Trump re-election strategy. Trump had planned to campaign on a strong economy and to portray Democrats as socialists. But now the economy is weak, and both Democrats and Republicans have supported multi-trillion dollar federal assistance programs. So it's going to be much harder for Trump to defeat Biden. 
His only hope really is if the COVID fatalities drop and the incidence rates really fall dramatically in the summer and into the fall, and that the economy then stages a strong recovery. If that happens, Trump would be in a stronger position. But if those things do not happen, that would be a major problem for President Trump. You can get more Policy 2020 content at brookings.edu slash policy2020. The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it in the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.